I've been married for almost 57 years now. In January, on the 1st, it will be 57 years. And I want you to know that that is to the same man (laughs) in consecutive years. And, uh, you know, when you get married, that you think you know everything about this guy that you're going to marry. But I knew very little about this man, and I learned it all afterwards, of course. And I'm still learning it about him now. But one thing that I learned about him is that he's very spontaneous. And several years ago, we were living in the Costa Mesa area, and we had bought a condominium. And we moved into it. And by the way, I've moved 26 times in the midst of these almost 57 years. And, of course, I'm not really counting, but I want you to know that about me. <laughs> so when we bought this place, we had to go in and completely just rehab the whole thing. We put new carpeting in at the beginning, and we painted it. And that was about all that we could afford to do. So we were in this place for 12 years. And, and so all the time, every time we could save up enough money, then we would do another step. And so the day came finally when we said, let's pull up the carpet downstairs and put hardwood floors in. And it was time to do this. So we made all the arrangements. And the workmen were to come on a Friday morning early and start. And they were very prompt at 8 o'clock in the morning. They showed up. And they began to proceed to pull up all the old carpeting through the downstairs. And that took them a, a few hours. And then they went and pulled up all the carpet strips that are around the side of it that tack the carpet down. And that took them a while to do. And then they came in and then they started uh, sanding down the cement floor so that everything could be, be even with the hardwood. And so the day was wearing on at about 5 o'clock. They were still working diligently, and my husband walked down the stairs where our, our loft was up in the stairs, kind of like our living area, our, our family room. And so he walked down the stairs about 5 o'clock, and he said, Honey, what's for dinner? As though that's my responsibility. And I looked at him and I said, you know, the workmen are probably going to wind up the day it's Friday. They're going to go home and they're going to um, want to be with their families. It's probably payday. And so just be patient. And my husband's just like yours. When he doesn't eat, he's a bear. And he was getting hungry. And 5 o'clock is his normal dinner time. And so the workmen kept working. About half an hour later, my husband walked back down the stairs and asked me again, what's for dinner? And... I looked at him and I said, you know, they're, they're probably going to wind it up. Don't worry. And I had planned that I would fix a nice dinner for him. And not only that, but the next morning I was to get up and go to Costa Mesa and do their women's retreat. And I hadn't packed any of my bags. I figured I'd have plenty of time. We'd have a nice quiet evening after the guys left and everything would be taken care of. But now they were still working. And About another half an hour, the workman must have realized what was going on and felt the tension in the air. And he came up to me, the foreman, and he said, Mrs. Hesterly, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is that we're going to be done in about a half an hour, but here's the bad news. And I thought, oh, here it's coming. They're going to charge me a lot more money. It was more work than they anticipated, and now I'm at their mercy. And he said, I forgot to tell you that we have to put a moisture barrier on the floor, completely on the downstairs, and there's no way you can walk on it for 12 full hours. You're either going to have to spend the entire 12 hours upstairs, or you're going to have to go away and spend the night in a hotel somewhere. 
And I went into a panic because my bags were not packed for the next day. And so I ran up the stairs and I grabbed my suitcase and I started throwing everything I could get my hands on into the suitcase. And my husband just came up the stairs. And after being such a bear, he just looked at me and says, oh, just get your purse. Let's go have dinner. (laughs) You'd think after all these years I would ask questions. I didn't ask a single question. I went like a little dumb sheep following after him. We got in the car, we went and had a nice dinner, and we drove into our driveway, and I realized, wait a minute, there's no way we can even get into our house. What are we going to do now? How do we go to a hotel at our age with not even a toothbrush or bag? (laughs) How do we explain that and answer the looks on their faces? So my husband pulled into the garage and he went over to the corner of the garage and pulled out the old rickety wooden ladder that he had. And then he proceeded to pull it to the back gate, unlock the gate, pull it to the back edge of the patio cover, and went up the ladder, climbed onto the patio roof, looked down at me and said, come on up, honey. Now, you have to see that I am the woman who has a fear of high places. I'm the woman who is on at the top of the escalator looking down, doing the little dance like this before I put my foot on it to get on. And now he was telling me to come up this ladder and climb onto the patio roof. And so I didn't even ask a question. I just climbed up that ladder, got to that top rung, the one that has the big sign on it that says, Do not step on this place. <laughs> And he was telling me, put your foot there, and then swing your leg onto the patio roof. Now, there was about this much space from the top of the ladder to the top of the roof, and he was telling me, just swing your leg over the top of it. Well, I managed to get one leg on the roof and one leg on the ladder, and I couldn't go any farther. And he said, now just grab hold of that piece of wood over there and pull yourself the rest of the way. Because by then, he was all the way to the wall where he had already, before we left, unlocked the window and pushed the screen out. So he had a plan that we would go through the window into the upstairs. And now he was telling me to just climb up on the top of this patio roof and all I could think of is a cement floor and I'm going to drop right through those rungs there's no way I can do it so I got myself up on the patio roof and I was still on my knees when I got up there and I did what all of you would do I I crawled on my hands and knees with my purse still on my arm mind you (laughs) and I got all the way over to the to the edge where the window was at the wall and I was laughing so hard I thought I'm going to wake up the whole neighborhood because we live in a gated community where everyone is older than we are. I said, they're going to to call the police and they're going to come and ask what these senior citizens are doing. (laughs) Going into a window, how do I explain to them that we're trying to supplement our social security? So I got all the way over to the edge of the I thought if I can make it over there, because he'd already climbed inside the, the house, and I thought if I could just make it to the window over there, I can pull myself up at the windowsill and make myself available and get into the rest of the house. And I got over there, and 
And I grabbed hold of the windowsill and I realized that it was higher than I thought because I thought all the time it was up to my waist, but it was way up to here. And so I, I grabbed hold of it, pulled myself up, and now he's telling me, just swing your leg over the windowsill. <laughs> do, I, do I look like the kind of person who'd be doing this? No. And so I managed to get one foot in and one foot out. And he said to me, okay, now there's my recliner in front of the window. Just grab hold of that and pull yourself the rest of the way in. So I grabbed hold of the back of the recliner only to have it recline on me. (laughs) And I was just hanging there. So finally, my husband climbed back out of the window onto the patio roof. And he said, I'm going to make my hands into a little sling and I'm going to count to three and then I'm going to shove you in the rest of the way. So he counted one, two, three and heave ho, I was into the room. And the point of this story is (laughs) that we need the Holy Spirit in our life. Because the Holy Spirit is the helper, the one who comes alongside to help one who is otherwise incapable. When God created woman, took her to Adam, he called her the helper. So what does that tell you about your husband? We need the Holy Spirit. And what I want to say to you tonight that he was there. My husband was there leading me all along the way. He was saying, put your foot there. Put your hand over here. You can do it. Don't put your hand over there. Don't do this. Do this. And I'm with you all the way. And that's exactly why we need the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the Spirit-filled life much less even know what the spirit life is without his help in us to teach us. Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And I know that you've been studying through this entire book of great wisdom. But we're going to look at some passages tonight that Denise has asked me to talk about And in verse 15 of chapter 5, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. We know that these are evil days. All we have to do is turn on the news or look at the paper, listen to the radio, look at the people around us in our own neighborhoods and the things that our children are going through. We know that we live in evil days. And he says, therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he begins to tell us what the Lord's will is. He said, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that he contrasts the being drunk with wine as being filled with the Spirit? Why? Because wine affects all of your being, the way you think, the way you act. My husband tells a little story about before he was meeting me that he he was a payday drunk and he'd go out on the weekend on Friday, get his paycheck, and he'd go out and get drunk. And he said he didn't get drunk just to get drunk. He got drunk so he could dance. He thought that made him really cool. Now, I have told him he still cannot dance. (laughs) But that was the whole purpose because it affected 
what he thought he could do, but couldn't, obviously. And then in verse 19, he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us to walk in good works. You've already talked about that. He tells us to walk worthy of our calling. He tells us to walk in love. He tells us to walk as children of the light. And lastly, that we're to walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. And in these verses, in this passage, he then tells us how to do that. Because I cannot walk in love. I cannot walk circumspectly. I cannot walk worthy of the Lord and that calling that he's put upon my life and upon your life. I cannot do those things. I cannot be the wife he wants me to be. I cannot be the mother or the grandmother, and I'm a great-grandmother now. I can't do that. I can't be a good neighbor. I can't be a teacher. I can't be an usher or a worship leader. I've never been a worship leader. could never do that. But I cannot do the things that God wants me to do without the power of the Spirit in my life. I find that it's just impossible. And then he proceeds in these verses to tell us how to do this. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says then that in this passage, he gives us the results, five incredible results of being Spirit-filled. He says our speech is going to be affected. We no longer begin to talk the way the world talks, and the world talks terrible. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are professing the name of Jesus Christ who are, who are using profanity and crudeness in their speech. But there's going to be an effect on the way that we talk. Because now our speech is going to be about the Lord and how, how he's blessed us and how wonderful he is, and we're going to be able to praise him. Our, not only our speech will be affected, but he tells us now that our worship is going to be affected because we're going to be singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our own hearts. You know, those nights when you wake up and, and you can't sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning, it never fails to hit me every morning at 3 o'clock. The Lord will wake me. And there's a song going through my mind, and he gives us those melodies, and, and he helps us to enter into worship And then he begins to affect our attitude. He gives us an attitude of gratitude or an attitude of thanksgiving. He helps us to see those things that we can bless him for, that he's done in our life. Rather than focusing on the negatives, we begin to see those positives that God has done. And then when we're filled with the Spirit, it also begins to affect our relationships. It affects our marriages. It affects our parenting. It affects our employer-employee relationships, all the family relationships that we have, even in the body of Christ. I think it's absolutely wonderful that I can be anywhere around the world and somebody tells me about their relationship with Christ in another language through an interpreter, and immediately I have relationship with them. Because I have Christ and we become brothers and sisters in the Lord. So having the Holy Spirit in our life, then as he continues through these passages, you'll find that it affects our warfare. And we are in a war. And he has given us supernatural weapons for this supernatural war that we are in day by day. Paul's exhortation to be filled with the Spirit is not an option 
It is a command. It is in that tense that he writes this. He said, be being filled. Notice that in the Greek, it is be being filled. That's a continual action verb. It means that, yes, I am filled now, but I still need to ask for more. In 20 seconds or 20 minutes or 20 days, I need to continually submit myself to the Holy Spirit to be filled with him. And we are going to either be controlled and led by the Holy Spirit or we are going to be led by the flesh. There's either one or the other. You cannot be led by both. Now, I can go back and forth, sometimes moment by moment. One moment I might be walking in the, in the spirit, just so filled up with him, and then somebody cuts in front of me, and immediately I'm in the flesh. And that's when I have to come back and say, fill me up again, Lord. Give me that cleansing and fill me up. And Paul told the church that the days were evil, and he knew that the only way to have victorious Christian living was to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit on a continual basis. You know, I was raised in a small denominational church for almost 20 years, and I accepted the Lord when I was very, very young, and uh, I, I just continued on in that church all my life, but nobody ever talked to me very much about the Holy Spirit. I really did not know anything. I knew that I was marched up into the baptistry with a little white robe on, and the water happened to be warm that day. That was a blessing, and they dunked me down and said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that was a little spooky to me then. And that's about all I knew. And when the benediction was given, it was in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And my husband and I continued on in that that church denomination. And for some reason, it was communicated to me that I needed to work hard to be pleasing to God. And so I began what we would all call a works trip, not understanding that God simply loved me because he is love. And his love for me doesn't depend upon my performance. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm sure that you learned that as you studied through this book of Ephesians in those first few chapters. You learned your position in Jesus Christ, that he is in you and you are in him. And because the Father sees you in him and he in you, you are acceptable in the beloved. And I learned that I didn't have to perform to have him love me more than he loved me. And on the other hand, I didn't have to do anything that would make him love me less. Certainly, he didn't always love the way I conducted my life, but he loved me. You know, my child is my child no matter what he does or she. And sometimes I don't like the things that they do. I don't like the lifestyle that they chose for a a, a period of time. But I love them, and that love for them never, never changes. In fact, I think sometimes it grew stronger when I saw them go through this because I grieved over them more in those difficult times. And so God loves me, and I had to learn that. But I began to work hard in the church, and we were taught in our denomination the Great Commission. In fact, our pastor only had two basic sermons. One was you must be born again. And the other one, in some form, was go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, what we call the Great Commission. And 
I grew up wanting to fulfill that so terribly and never being able to to do that. I never shared about Jesus with anyone. In fact, I struggled with depression all those years and and there were sometimes I was just absolutely miserable and irritable and if I were raising my children the way I today, the way I raised them then, I'd probably arrest, be arrested for child abuse because I'm sure that I was known on the block as the screamer. And I would be hysterical and I'd go in and throw myself across the bed and slam the door and I would be hysterical because I wanted so hard to be pleasing to the Lord. And so one day in those early years before I met my husband, I went to a youth meeting at our church. And there was a young man that had come there and he had come with his sister. He was in the Marine Corps. He was stationed at 29 Palms and he'd ask his sister to take him somewhere where he could meet chicks. And she said, I've got just the place for you. And brought him down to the church that night. And he spotted me across the room. Before the evening was over, we were sharing a hymn book around the piano. I was too young to drive. So my mother came and picked me up. And as we were driving home, she recognized through the rearview mirror that this young man was following us home. And being a good mother, a wise mother, she promptly lost him along the way. But a few months later, I received a letter from him, and now he had been stationed in Okinawa, and he was going to be there for several months, and he was asking if I would be a pen pal. And that sounded very, very glamorous to a young girl who was not quite 16 at the time. So we began writing to one another, and then he came home. He was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps, and... I was working one night, and he asked if I would go out on a date with him, and we met each other and went to the first In-N-Out Burger in Orange County on South Main Street. I can still remember what I had on and what I ordered that night, and we began dating one another, and he was so glamorous. He looked like a young Jimmy James Dean to me, you know, with a pack of cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve. And the blonde wavy hair. And not only that, the thing that was the real killer was he had a brand new car, so that was really cool. (laughs) So every day he would come to the high school and he would pick me up, and I thought that was so awesome because all the other girls could see me do this. And it wasn't too long after that that we had been dating that he asked me if I would marry him. So he gave me a ring, which was very glamorous, I was a senior in high school, and I could flash that to all my friends. And a week before Christmas, I discovered that I was pregnant with this child. Now, mind you, I was the girl who wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to be a good Christian girl. I had told the Lord at the age of 12 at church camp that I would go to the mission field and serve him with all of my life and that was where I was headed but now I was pregnant not married and a week before Christmas I had to go in and tell my parents this tragic news and this young man was honorable he said I'll go with you and we sat there and told my parents and they were heartbroken and I was humiliated and felt so overwhelmed with guilt and shame because I knew that I had sinned before the Lord 
And my parents, of course, were angry at the same time. And they said to us, now you have to go and tell the pastor of the church. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it was hard enough to tell my parents. How do I tell my pastor? He's like God to me. And they said, no, you've got to go in and talk to him. And this young man said, I'll go with you. So he went with me, and we sat down with the pastor, who was also a very wise man, and he said, you have these options. You can go away and have this child and give it up for adoption, or you can choose to get married. And this is where his wisdom came in. He said, you can choose to get married, but don't feel that you have to get married. This is not a good basis for marriage. But the young man looked at me and looked at the pastor, and he said, I love her. I want to get married. And so on January 1st, 1958, we made arrangements at our little church. And at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I stood at the back of the church. And when the doors opened, I looked down at this young man, and I thought, God, what on earth have I done? And what am I doing now? And who is that man down there? And what do I think I'm doing pledging my life to this stranger? And then I remembered that my parents had paid for all the flowers, so I thought, it's a done deal. (laughs) There's no way out now. And so I walked down the aisle, we said our vows, we said I do, and we did. We were married. I was 16 years old. He was 21 years old. I don't recommend that to anyone in this room or this church. And so we began our married life not knowing what we were doing at all. And we were children who were having children, and I had This child at the age of 17, he weighed 10 pounds, 4 ounces. I know you're going, oh, but can you think what I was doing? (laughs) And then when I was 19, I had my daughter. And so we were trying to raise these children not knowing what we were doing in our church. We were not taught how to be parents. We were not taught how to have marriage. We were preached at. We were told, you must be born again or the Great Commission. And that's what I had all my life shoved down my throat. And I wanted desperately now to not just be a good Christian girl, but I wanted to be a good Christian wife. I wanted to be a good Christian mother. I just didn't know what those were. And I knew that I was failing miserably. And there were many, many times when we were on every single committee that was in the church that was available because there were only about 50 people in our church. And when you've only got a church that size, everybody gets a job, maybe two or three, whether you want them or not. I can remember they even put me on the finance committee, and I still don't know how to balance a checkbook. (laughs) My husband does that for me. So here we were trying to do what was right, but struggling the whole time. And I was trying to raise my children the right way. As I told you, I was the screamer on the block. And there were times two weeks out of the year in summertime that vacation Bible school would roll around. And we were, if we were good Christian mothers, we had to sign up to work in vacation Bible school because in our little church, everybody knew who was working and who wasn't. So I would sign up every year to work in vacation Bible school. On the very first day, I would come home hoping that I had some dread disease, taking my temperature, hoping that I was contagious, but not so sick that I couldn't take my children and drop them off. (laughs) 
because I really do love children. It's just your children that I have a problem with. (laughs) So all those years we were taught as women to work with the children. That was the only thing that was open to us, the only choices. And I, I hated every single minute. And I'm sorry, I love children, but... But you put me in a room with toddlers, and I'm like a deer caught in the headlights. I'd rather speak to 2,000 women in an auditorium than to speak to two little toddlers. (laughs) I just don't know what to do with them. And so I was trying to do all the right things, but I was doing all the wrong things. I was failing. And then the most tragic event in my life occurred, the most traumatic event occurred when I was 28 years old, the one that I loved more than anyone else in the whole world, more than my husband, more than my kids, was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. And I began to watch my dear mother begin to deteriorate day by day because by the time they discovered it had gone to her brain and I saw her in pain and agony and I was devastated. In our church, we didn't, We didn't pray for the sick. We didn't believe even that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were available to us. And I wasn't really taught, remember? I was just preached at. And so I began to bargain with God. And I I began to say to the Lord, "If, if you'll just heal my mother, then I'll pray more. Not that I was praying much anyway. If you'll heal my mother, I'll read my Bible more. I wasn't reading my Bible either. If you'll heal my mother, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. It was all on a bargaining, my performance again. And day by day, my mother didn't get better. She got worse. And there came the time, that one day, that I said to the Lord, if you're not going to heal my mother, will you please just take her home? I can't stand to see her in this pain anymore. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got the call from the hospital in Orange County saying, if you want to see your mother, then you need to come immediately. And I got in the car, drove down there, got off the elevator, and they met me at the doors telling me that my mother had just expired. I must have had a blank look on my face because I did not understand what they were telling me. Expired? Only newspaper subscriptions expire or a prescription expires What do you mean my mother expired? And they finally told me that she had slipped into the arms of Jesus. And my mother loved the Lord more than anything else, more than any other person. She was radically born again and spirit-filled. And I'm telling you, as I stood there, it was a bittersweet experience. It was sweet because I knew that my mother was with the one she loved more than anyone else in the whole world, that now she was dancing on streets of gold, she was free from all tears, she was healed, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus rejoicing and worshiping him. All of those things were coming true for her, and it was bitter because now I was the one who was suffering grief. I'd never, ever lost anyone. I'd never been to a funeral service So all this was new to me, and now I was the one who was left to grieve. Now, I have to tell you, my mother was my best friend. My mother had always been there for me. I was the oldest of three children, and there were times my mother would roll out her old Singer treadle sewing machine, and she would make me something almost every single week. She would make me something so that I'd be dressed like the rest of the kids. My mother would shop with me. I loved to hang out with my mother 
And I wasn't like a lot of teenagers today who are just embarrassed to be out in public with another adult, much less their parent. And I just loved to hang out with her. And now she was gone, and I would sit on the back porch and I would cry out to the Lord, Lord, why did you take my mother? Why didn't you take me, Lord? I'm the one who's not good. Why didn't you tell my, take my mother? And Lord, what am I to do without her now? My mother lived right behind me. My kids actually would come home from school, go to Grandma's first, and then climb the fence to come to our house, and now she was gone. And so I began to cry out to the Lord out there on that back porch step. And, you know, when we're weak and we're vulnerable and we're hurting, the enemy comes in and starts whispering to us. And he started whispering all kinds of lies to me. And he began to whisper in my ear that life really wasn't worth living. And I had everything really good for me, going for me at that time. My husband loved me and adored me. My children were good. Some of the time, we had just bought our first home. My husband was rising in his company. Things looked really good, but I was absolutely miserable. And he began to tell me that life wasn't worth living, and he began to give me thoughts of how I could take my own life. And I didn't understand or know what God felt about suicide. So I began to have thoughts like, You know, if I just do something and take my own life, maybe I can make it look like an accident and God won't know. (sighs) That's how perverted our thoughts are sometimes when the enemy gets a hold of us. And then I begin to think, you know, if I'm hurting over my mother's loss, then if something happens to me, my husband and my kids will feel that pain in their heart. At least I hope they will. I don't want to be gone and then have nobody cry. And then because the Lord has a wonderful sense of humor, he reminded me that my family called me an obsessive-compulsive housekeeper. And I'm probably the only woman left that vacuums her carpet every single day, whether it needs it or not. And this is a little aside. There are sometimes my husband walks on the carpet and leaves footprints. And because I'm obsessive compulsive about it, I get out the vacuum and I run it over the carpet without even plugging it in because I just like the lines in the carpet. <laughs> and so he reminded me that if I did something and I left a mess in the house, knowing my husband, if they took me to the hospital, and I made it through, and I lived, and I came home again, the mess would be there, and I would be the one who would have to clean it up. So I think that's really what kept me from taking my own life. (laughs) And it was about that time our pastor came to the church, and he told everybody, you know, Billy Graham's coming to Anaheim Stadium for a crusade, and in preparation for that, We're going to have a non-denominational meeting down at this church, and they're going to teach everybody how to use the four spiritual laws, which, for those of you who don't know, it's put out by Campus Crusade for Christ, and it leads the person in the plan of salvation. And they were going to teach us how to use this as a witnessing tool. And I thought, you know what? You've been shoving the Great Commission down my throat all these years, but you've never told me how I'm going to go to that meeting. 
That was God's perfect timing for me because I got a sitter for the kids and dragged my husband down there kicking and screaming. I thought, if I'm going to get this, he's going to get this. And we went down to that meeting. And before they could show us how to use the four spiritual laws, they pulled out a little blue booklet that had a little white dove on the front. And it said at the bottom, have you been filled with the Spirit? I didn't know anything about being filled with the Spirit. I didn't know I could be filled with the Spirit. I wasn't even sure what that meant. I just thought that was for people like Pastor Rob, Billy Graham, and Pastor Chuck Smith. You know, the big dudes. Not for me. I'm just a a wife and a mom. But they're saying I can be filled with God's Spirit. And they begin to take us step by step, page by page, through this little booklet. And one of the pages had a diagram and had three circles on it. And I want you to kind of just picture this in your mind. And each little circle had a little stick figure chair. And in the first one, this chair had an S on, or excuse me, a cross on the top. And an S that was outside the circle, kind of floating around, but inside the circle around this chair were words like love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, meekness, and self-control. All those things I didn't have in my life. And all the things that are listed in Galatians chapter 5 is the, what? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. And they said that, that cross on, on that chair represented the spirit-filled Christian. This is the one who has placed self outside their life and now is living under control of the Holy Spirit. And then the next circle had the same little chair. And the S was on the chair and the cross was outside the life. And inside the circle were words like adultery, fornication, anger, wrath, malice. Um, what? Some of the envy, jealousy, those things that are listed in Galatians chapter 5 as the works of the flesh. That circle represented the person who had never invited Christ to come into their life. The cross was outside the circle, and self was on the throne. That represented the person who was not born again. The next circle, the third circle, had self on the chair, and the cross was inside the circle, but it was kind of floating around the edge. And inside that circle were the words like envy, jealousy, wrath, malice, fornication, adultery, and And I like what Paul does. He tags on those words, and the like, just in case we've left some of these off. (laughs) Considered the works of the flesh. This circle represented the Christian, the one who invited Christ to come into their life. But self was still on the throne. It's what we call a carnal Christian. Now, ladies, when we talk normally about Being a carnal Christian, we're talking about somebody who's out living with somebody they're not married to or committing fornication or adultery or big-time sins that we categorize. But a carnal person is one who is letting their flesh rule their life. They can have Christ in their life. And you can sit in church every Sunday or women's Bible study. And listen to the word, read the word, go through all the motions and still be a carnal Christian inside. 
And then when we looked at all three circles, they said, which circle represents your life? And it was like a light bulb went on in my spirit, my heart. For the very first time, I thought, that's what has been wrong with me all these years. I am a carnal Christian. And they said there's a prayer at the end of the book, a prayer to be filled with God's spirit. But we don't want you to pray that right now. We want you to go home and pray what they called a prayer list, a sin list. We want you to go home, get in a quiet place all by yourself with pencil and paper, and we want you to ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind those things that need to be confessed to him, that you need to ask forgiveness for. Now, nobody had ever told me that. I didn't know what to do with my sin. All those 20 years I'd been a Christian, I thought, nobody told me that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, I could confess my sins and be cleansed. And I needed to do that on a continual basis. And so, not knowing what to do with everything, I carried 20 years of baggage of sin on my shoulders. No wonder I was depressed. So that night I went home. And I did business with the very first time in my life. I did business with God. I was serious. It was going to be all or nothing for me. Either he was who he said he was, or he was going to be nothing. My husband met me in the hallway with a stack of paper and a pencil. He said, you go into the bedroom and take as much time as you need. It was all about me, not him. He didn't think it applied. And I went into the bedroom, locked the door, and I got real with God, and I said, God, help me to know the things that I need to confess. And he's so gentle. The Holy Spirit is so gentle. He reminded me of those times my husband had come home and walked in the door and said, who ate all the cookies? And with chocolate still in my teeth, I would say, oh, the kids ate them all. (laughs) So I wrote those down. Then he reminded me of the time I'd gone to the market and come out with too much change and said, oh, praise the Lord. Wrote that one down. And then he went a little bit step further and he reminded me of all those times that I'd saved my money, my extra grocery money, put it away so I could buy myself something to wear, only to have my kids come home with holes in their jeans or holes in their tennis shoes. I'd have to take my money and buy my kids what they needed. And I had anger and bitterness. You know, I was selfish. I had lots of sin problems, just like all the rest of us. And I wrote that down, and then he reminded me of the times that I'd planned for Friday night a nice date with my husband, only to have my kids get sick, and I'd have to cancel my plans. I'd been angry with that. So I confessed that. And he took me to another level, and he reminded me of all those times that I'd been so angry with my husband. And on the outside, I had forgiven him, but inside I was angry and bitter. And you know, we can do that as women, can't we? We can say, oh, I forgive you. But we've got, as we're hugging them, we got the knife turning in their back. Because, oh, yes, I forgive you, but I want to make you suffer a little bit and punish you. And we know how to do that very well. So I wrote that down. And then he took me to the deepest level of all, and he said, June, I want you to know that you've been angry with your mother. And I thought, angry with my mother? I love my mother, and how do you be angry with a dead person? He said, you've been angry with your mother because you feel that she's rejected you and left you when she'd always been there for you. And I thought, Lord, 
I'm being real tonight. Yes, I've been angry with my mother. She was always available to me, and now she's gone. She's having a good time, and I'm the one that's hurting. It's not fair. And then he took me to the deepest level of all. And he said, I want you to know that you've been angry with me. And ladies, I literally gasped because I did not know anyone in the scripture who'd ever been angry with God and lived. (laughs) And I said, yes, God. You see, this is what true repentance means. is saying yes to what God says and then turning around and going the other way. And I said, yes, God, I've been angry with you all these years because my life did not turn out the way I planned it to turn out. I told you, Lord, I would go as a missionary. I would go into all the world and spread the gospel. I would be the next Amy Carmichael. Just don't send me to Africa. And I mean that even more today. But I was being honest with God. As though it was God's fault that I'd gotten pregnant when I was 16 and things had taken a different turn. And I went down that list and I said, God, forgive me for this. God, forgive me for this. God, forgive me for this. And I went on and on. I'm not telling you everything. It would take all night. And then tomorrow and the next day. And then I asked him to cleanse me and forgive me, claiming First John 1, 9. If we confess our faults, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. All. I'm so thankful for that little word. Three letters. All, all, all. And then I prayed that prayer in the back of the book to be filled with God's spirit. Do you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. Until I got up the next morning. My whole life was turned upside down because God had so miraculously filled me with his spirit. Jesus promised that out of our innermost being would flow torrents of living water. I had torrents of living water flowing from my life, into my life and out of my life. I was so filled with love for Jesus Christ, I began to see what grace was all about. I didn't deserve anything, but he gave it all. I began to see all those things. I began to, to sing those songs that I'd sung, those old dry hymns that I knew by heart, every single verse, I, that I would sit in church and they wouldn't even have to tell me what the hymn was because I knew if they said number so-and-so, I knew what it was. Now I began to sing those songs with joy and love and adoration in my life. I went from just having my salvation to falling in love with Jesus. Now he became my savior, my best friend, the lover of my soul. All the verses I had learned in childhood, vacation Bible school, so I could win a prize, now came flooding back into my mind, and now they meant something. I began to devour God's word. Remember all the results we read in Ephesians? All those began to happen. My relationships with everyone began to change. I began to love my husband. My husband didn't understand what had happened to me, and he began to try to pick a fight with me because he thought I was on some trip. He didn't think it was real. Why he wanted the old wife back, I have no idea. Because now I wouldn't fight. I could have cared less. You know, sometimes we as women, we have these wonderful spiritual experiences, and we want our husbands to have one just like we have. I could have cared less. 
I just wanted him to leave me alone so I could be with Jesus. I wanted to read the word. I wanted to feel his Holy Spirit flowing in me and through me. And it was amazing. I would go to church and I would sing those dry hymns. And all of a sudden my, my hands would start to rise. And we didn't do that in our church. And one Sunday morning the pastor actually stopped the service. And he said, June, do you have a question? And I shook my head, and from then on, I sat on my hands, but tears would be rushing down my cheeks. I had always wanted to fulfill the Great Commission, but how do you tell somebody, give your life to Jesus, you're going to be just like me, you're going to be irritable, depressed, discouraged, angry. My life was wholly changed. Because not only did I get filled with God's spirit, but I was an Avon lady. (laughs) I had an open door in every household in the neighborhood. I would fill my basket with samples and four spiritual laws and catalogs. I would go down. I would make a good sale. I would whip out the four spiritual laws. I would lead them all the way to the back. I can't tell how many of you, how many of the women prayed to receive the Lord just to get this crazy woman out of their head. I was still trying to do the Lord's work, but I was doing it still in the flesh. But I was also learning to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I was beginning to recognize when he would speak and Now he was telling me to go down to this one neighbor's house, and I'd been avoiding her because she had five kids who were the holy terrors of the neighborhood. And I thought, God, now send me to Africa. I don't want to go to her house. I'll go anywhere, but don't send me to her house. And finally, I could not take it anymore, and so I loaded up my basket, and I went down there, knocked on the door, and I made a wonderful sale, and... Whipped out my four spiritual laws, got all the way to the back and said, would you like to pray this prayer to receive Christ as your Savior? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, no. So I said, Lord, I'm out of here. I've done what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) The very next Sunday in my little church, only 50 people. I came in that door and lined up on the back wall where all seven members of that family, they'd come to the church for the very first time ever in their lives. All five of the holy tears were sitting there. (laughs) And guess what Sunday it was? It was you must be born again Sunday. (laughs) And when the invitation was given... And on the tenth chorus of Just As I Am, without one plea, all seven members got up and walked down the front and gave their hearts and lives to the Lord. I thought my pastor was going to have a heart attack. I don't think he'd ever seen that many people get saved all at one time. And from that point on, you could not shut me up. But now I was starting to have struggles in my home because my husband couldn't understand what had happened to his wife. And so we began this going at each other, and I just wouldn't fight with him. And it came that time 
of the year when we had revival in our church. Now, we only had revival once a year. It was on the calendar, so we expected it. (laughs) But as the Lord would have it, we had a visiting pastor from New Zealand who was a closet, spirit-filled Christian. Now, I can't explain that either, but... In our denomination, if you talked about that or talked about the gifts, you would have been booted out. So he kept it quiet, but he was filled with the Spirit. And so he came, and he was the pastor, the preacher, for the revival. And because my husband was an elder and a deacon in the church, we had to be there every single service. So every night we would drive down to the church, and one night we drove down there, and we had a, a really bad fight. I really got into it with him. And we he parked right in front of the front of the church, the door, and... I got out, slammed the door, started walking all the way home. And I was about halfway home, and the Lord began to speak to me. And he said, are you going to let the enemy have the victory tonight? And I said, no way. And so I walked home, got in the other car, drove all the way back, and watched my spiritual-looking husband sitting down in the front. And I sat in the back of the church. And See, my husband was an elder, a deacon, and so he had to look spiritual, so he was sitting down towards the front. And this pastor was down in the front, and he said, before we start the service tonight, we're going to do something different. And everybody in the church gasped, because we never did anything different. (laughs) And he said, the Lord has spoken to me tonight, and then everybody gasped, because nobody ever said the Lord said he said, there's some of you here who gave your lives to full-time Christian missionary service, but you've not fulfilled that call on your life. I want you just to get up tonight and walk between me and the pulpit and go sit down, and that's all that's going to happen tonight. And so one by one, as the organ was playing, people would get up from their chairs, and they would come down to the front. You know, there are 50 people in the church. We knew everybody. So my husband told me later that he was sitting there, and looking at this one and thinking what a hypocrite she is and what a drag that guy is. Not a drag, drag, but a... (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And so one by one, these people were going to the front. Pretty soon nobody was moving, and so my husband was just sitting there, and all of a sudden the pastor, after about, it seemed like forever, quietness in the church with everybody's looking with their head down because nobody wants to look at him in the eye anymore and he said the lord has said another gasp there's one more person that needs to come to the front my husband got up out of his chair went to the front went and sat down he was like a shot out of a cannon And from that moment on, he was filled with God's spirit. Nobody touched him. He didn't pray a prayer of any kind of formality, nothing. He just said, I give up. I want whatever she's got. And I want to be filled with God. And he went and sat down. Our lives were turned upside down from that point on. Ladies, God wants us to be filled with his spirit. May I say that there is one initial baptism with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the body of Christ. The moment we say yes to him, we become part of his body. There is water baptism, but there's another work of the Holy Spirit called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. 
A.C. Dixon says when we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. When we rely on psychology, we get what psychology can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. I tried all my life on my own to do God's work. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It couldn't be what I was supposed to be. But with God's help through the Holy Spirit, I can be what he wants me to be. Jesus gave us the example. He went down to the River Jordan. He went into the water, was baptized with water, but when he came out, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And it was from that moment on we see Jesus begin his public ministry. We really don't have any record of those early years of Jesus. We know that he was born of a virgin birth. We know that mother was his Mary, that Joseph was his stepfather. We know that at the age of 12 he went to Jerusalem and he was found in the temple by his parents, confounding the teachers. But we don't know anything about him from the age of 12 to the age of 30 when he went to the River Jordan and he was baptized. From that moment on, he began his public ministry, showing us that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that we are filled with him, that we can accomplish the Lord's work in our lives. Now, I don't understand that either because Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But all four Gospels speak of the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and that word upon is very important. Ari Torrey said that there were no miracles recorded until the age of 30. And he said that the Old Testament spoke of the Spirit coming upon God's people for service, but he could depart from them. So there was a difference on the day of Pentecost. He came to remain upon us. In Psalm 51, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, cried out to the Lord when he was exposed, and he said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he knew that he could lose that anointing on his life. So there's a different time that we live in now. Now the day of Pentecost has come. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Jesus has been in Galilee with his disciples. He's given them the great commission. And he tells them to go into all the world. And then he comes alongside them in front of them and he breathes on them and says, Receive ye. The Holy Spirit. If Jesus were to walk among us and breathe on us and say that, would we receive the Holy Spirit? We would, wouldn't we? I believe at that moment that the disciples were born again. But then Jesus told them, don't do anything until you go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So there was another work that he wanted to accomplish. So if You don't remember anything. Remember this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because that's when he told them this, he said, but you will receive power, dunamis, dynamic, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We just talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus and remaining, didn't we? It's a P in the Greek, E-P-I. He says, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
That word witnesses means martyrs in the Greek. It is the word that we get our English word martyr from. It means one who is able to die now to the flesh and live for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to plug us up against the wall and pull out their gun. Although many people around the world are dying for their faith. And it could very easily come to us as well. This persecution that's coming upon the Christian. He said, you shall be witnesses. Not maybe, not hopefully, but you will. You shall be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, that's right where you live with your unsaved family members. And you're probably going to face some of them at holiday time that's coming up. And he says in in Judea, that's down at the local laundromat or cleaners where you take your, your things to be cleaned. And then down at the school or the supermarket. And then he says in Samaria, that could be out in Temecula where I live. And then into the end of the world, that's down in 29 Palms for sure. <laughs> he said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to have dunamis. And here's what I want you to remember. There are three workings of the Holy Spirit. The first two are found in John chapter 14. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, the comforter, the paracletus, the one who comes alongside to help, he's going to be with you and he shall be in you. With in the Greek is para, P-A-R-A. Now the Holy Spirit was with you before you even knew Jesus Christ. He was with the disciples before they were born again. He, he walked with them for three, three years. Ate with them, walked along the line. He taught them. Probably slept in the same room where they were at. Spent the night. And the Holy Spirit was with you before you even knew Jesus Christ. He was the one who was tugging on your heart and saying, you need a Savior. You need forgiveness of sins. You need to be born again. He was saying to you, you need to walk down the aisle and say yes to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was with you before you knew Jesus Christ because no man can come to the Father except that the Holy Spirit draws him. And then he said he's going to be in you. He'll be with you and he'll be in you. E-N in the Greek. The moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, he came into your life. You were born again. You became a daughter of the king. You became the temple or the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within your life. You're born again. If the rapture were to come right now, you would go to be with the Lord. If you were to walk out of this room and God forbid that some car hit you and you die, you'd go right to be with heaven. You are now a part of the family of Jesus Christ. But he says there's this third work. He says that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. E-P-I in the Greek. That is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He promised out of our innermost being would be torrents of living water. And on the day of Pentecost, 120 people gathered in that upper room had the Holy Spirit come upon them. The disciples had already received the Holy Spirit in them. But now they had the upon experience. The other people in the room, how many does that make left? 109? Something like that. I'm not good at math, obviously. I don't do the checkbook or the finances. They went from the with experience to the in experience to the upon experience all at the same time. They got the whole enchilada. 
There are five instances listed in the book of Acts. You can look those up when you go home. Each one was different. Some of them had a period of time from the time they received Christ till the time that somebody prayed for them or the Holy Spirit came upon them. Remember at the house of Cornelius where the Holy Spirit came on all that were there on the Gentiles for the first time? What happened to them? As Paul was even beginning to explain the word, they had the Holy Spirit come upon them and they got born again, filled with God's Spirit all at the same time. And I'm talking about being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, kind of synonymous, but they're a little bit different. And I love what R.A. Torrey calls it. He said, you can, be call, you can call it being filled with the Spirit, the upon experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, it doesn't matter what you call it, just make sure you get it. But I would say make sure he gets you. My close friend, Sandy McIntosh, most of you know her, was invited to come down and see Mike, her husband, get baptized in water down at the ocean, Corona Del Mar. She went down there and she thought, you know, Mike was crazy. They were separated, divorced at the time. And he had invited her and she thought, well, I'll just go out of curiosity and see what's going on. And so she saw all these people lined up to go into the water and she just got in the line and not knowing what she was doing. And the guy next to her and said, you know, uh, are, are, you, are you getting baptized today too? Are, are you saved? And, and she says, well, I've been going to church. I know all the hymns. And he said, no. He said, I got born again just last week. And he explained all of it to her and she kept marching down to the waters. The line got shorter, found herself in the water, gave her heart to the Lord, came up out of the water, speaking in tongues. So she got everything all at one time. But my life is in Acts chapter 19, where Paul now, who is the missionary, goes to Ephesus, the book that we're reading and studying. And he says to the people gathered there, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, I didn't even know there was such a thing. And he laid hands on them and prayed for them, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit or filled with God's Spirit. I love what Spurgeon or Redpath said. I can't figure out which one. But one of them said, too many of us are satisfied with just the sip that saves That's our salvation. I want torrents of living water. I don't want just to be a container for the Holy Spirit. I want him to flow into me and flow through me. We live in evil days. The world around us is going to be changed one by one by one. No election is going to make a change. It comes by a personal revival in the hearts and lives of men and women and children. And if we are not sharing the gospel, we're not going to see a change come and a revival come. And I cannot share the gospel. I cannot open my mouth. I, believe it or not, am an introvert. And I can't open my mouth unless God does it through me. It's an impossibility. And he wants to come upon us and give us torrents of living water. It will affect how we talk. It will affect our walk. 
It will affect our relationships. It will affect our warfare. It will affect every single part of our lives. No longer a container, but now a conduit, a channel for him to flow through me. I hope I didn't confuse you by this lesson. Just know this. If you don't remember anything else, God wants you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. It's a command. It is not an option. Paul said, be being filled. There's that one initial baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there are many fillings. When I find that I need to confess my faults to the Lord when I've been in sin, I need to say, God, forgive me, claim John chapter 1, verse 9, and then let him fill me back up again to overflowing. So it's a continual walking in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to be submitted to him. It's no longer I, but thy will be done. Submitting ourselves completely to him.